if you have a Bible, Acts 1, that's where we're going to be. And uh, we are starting a new series this morning. It's called The Jesus Movement. And uh, we're not talking about hippies in California in the 1970s, if any of you brought your, your bandanas and tie-dyed t-shirts and peace signs and things. But um, I'll explain a little bit later why that name, uh, why we chose that name for this series. But uh, we want to use this time, uh, let me rewind just a little bit, to late last year. And uh, it was about November, the elders had a meeting, and this was going to be a time when uh, the elders of Shaw here, we were going to come together and decide on what we would communicate to all of you uh, this year about where the church is going and who we are and, and, and vision and direction and those kinds of things. So um, if you know me, you know that I'm a, I'm a real structure person. And so I thought, right, here we go. And, and, I, and I had all my uh, organizational charts and diagrams and five-point plans and, and management speak and all that sort of stuff down. And I, and I rocked along to this meeting and I'd produced a little, a little plan, not actually the plan, but just a plan for the plan. That's how planned I was, you know. <laughs> this is, I've got issues, I'm telling you, man. I actually color code my emails. That's how bad it gets for me. Um, but so I had this snappy little plan, plan for the plan, and I presented this to them, and uh, it, I had little acronyms going on, like um, SMART goals, you know, specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, time-bound goals. If you like that, we had some of those in there, and just this whole thing of what the strategic plan needed to look like. And the elders um, nodded and smiled graciously at me, and uh, we all went home feeling really good about ourselves after that, and, and felt like we knew where this was all uh, heading. And then, Within, it was really within a week or two after that, I just started to get this real unease about all of that. And I, I don't usually have uh, many experiences of God really speaking to me, and, and even this wasn't in any audible voice or anything like that, but I just had a really strong impression uh, in the last few weeks of last year of God really pressing on my heart the need just to hold on a minute and just slow down and putting that question in my mind, where am I in this? God asking me this question, where, where, is, where, where is my power in this? Where, where are you creating space for me to come and to lead this church? You've got your plan. Um, you, you could quite easily go and, and come up with some great vision statement, purpose statement, mission statement, five-point strategy for solving all the church's problems, but where am I in all of that? And it, just to be honest, it, I, it, I was well outside my comfort zone. This was quite inconvenient, really, because I, had, I knew exactly where I thought we all needed to be, but God was really just slowing me down. And I brought this to the elders, and being the godly guys they were, this really resonated with them. I think they were, they were having the same sense. I shared this with our ministry leaders um, at, at the last meeting we had last year. And again, it just seemed to uh, echo what people were feeling and thinking about the church that just had this real sense among the leadership of we need to stop and we need to pray and we need to discern and we need to learn to listen to God. Uh, we need to learn to see where he's already moving and be prepared to follow him and not always have every single step mapped out. So uh, the bottom line is we, we don't have, at uh, this given point in time, the great strategic plan to solve every problem and chart every direction. Um, that's not to say we're not planned, our ministries know what they're doing and we're moving forward and that's great, but among the leadership we do have that real sense at the moment of waiting on God and just letting Him lead, letting Him set the pace for the church, really looking to Him. And to me that really feels a lot richer and deeper uh, than where we were. And to be honest, these days and maybe this is just me, but all, all that rhetoric uh, of um, mission statements, vision statements, purpose statements, strategic goals and pillars, it's all just starting to ring a little bit hollow 
and just sort of sound, I, I don't know, just kind of corporate and, and something. And we just sense there's something more, there's something deeper, and it might take a little bit more time. But uh, what we intend this series to be, leading up to our 10-year uh, anniversary in a couple of weeks' time, and then out of that, is just to share with you a bit of a work in progress, I guess, of what God is laying on our hearts, because we certainly haven't been devoid of, of a sense of His working and a sense of His movement, but just to let you know, I guess, where we are, thinking and feeling uh, the Spirit of God is, is taking us as a church, and as a framework for some of that, I want to look with you over the next few weeks at some snapshots from the early chapters of the book of Acts. Uh, this is something that God has really led me back to as I've spent some time in prayer and really brought um, the whole direction of shore before God. He's led me back to these chapters and led me back to the, the purity and the, um, yeah, I don't even know what the word is, of, of the, the early chapters, the very first church, these people who had such close proximity to Christ. Um, cutting right across 2,000 years of church history. What did this community look like? didn't seem to me they had much of a strategic plan. They relied on the raw power of the Spirit working and moving and, and doing these things, and they just moved as God led them. So uh, we want to just look at some, some pictures of that, and hopefully this can be the beginning of an ongoing conversation. I'm sure the plan will come, and the answers will all be there, but I think that this is something that we can be part of together and to talk about together. Hopefully this can spin off into conversations and life groups and around dinner tables and those kinds of things, and we can discern together where God might be leading us. So I want to start this morning uh, with uh, Acts chapter 1, right at the beginning of uh, this book. And if you've read the book of Acts, you may know that Acts is part two of a two-volume history of the church. Anyone know what the first volume's called? Luke. Yeah, so Luke wrote Luke and Acts, and Acts pretty much picks up from where Luke finishes off. So it's worth, if you're reading the Scriptures, to read those two together, because I think Luke intended them to be read together. And here we are at a point in time where Jesus has just, he's just finishing his earthly life. He's lived, he's been crucified, he's been raised from the dead, he's spent about 40 days appearing to his disciples, and now they have this final encounter with him. He leaves them with these final words before ascending to heaven before their very eyes. So let's read this in Acts chapter 1, the first um, eight or so verses. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was with them, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is the city they were in at the time, and in Judea and Samaria, these were the regions around the area of Jerusalem, and to the ends of the earth. And you know where the ends of the earth was, right? That's New Zealand, yeah, that's right. I said this when I was speaking in a church in Cincinnati. I said, you know New Zealand's in the Bible, right? Thought, what? Acts 1.8, here it is. Yeah. <laughs> flicking through and... Oh, yeah, ends of the earth, yeah. 
they didn't think that was very funny either, actually. <laughs> but uh, for Luke's purposes, um, the ends of the earth was probably Rome, actually, uh, which is why Acts finishes when Paul gets to Rome, because then this prediction of Jesus, this, which really functions like a table of contents to the book of Acts, is finished. They've finally got to Rome, which is really the ends of the known earth and the capital of the empire, that kind of thing. So there's a lot in here that we could unpack. Uh, we're not going to work through it verse by verse today, but I want to just hone in on this last verse we read, verse 8. And when you narrow down what, to, the, to the central commission that Jesus is in giving to his disciples, the central task that he's entrusting to them, what is it? To be his witnesses. You will be my witnesses. This is the key thing. The last words Jesus chooses to speak to his followers. He gives them this assignment. You will be my witnesses. Now, for us, living in 21st century Western culture, we hear that. You will be my witnesses. We think witnessing, Christian witnessing. What, what do you think of as soon as you hear those words? You might think of something like this. You know, a guy sharing his faith with someone, that kind of street corner preaching. You know, someone just preaching the gospel and just telling people they're going to be saved or they're going to hell. We think that's essentially what witnessing is. And it's not that that is outside of the category of witnessing. There is a place for that. But we tend to reduce it right down just to witnessing, to telling someone how they can be quote-unquote saved and have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I think Jesus was getting it more than that. He had a, a deeper understanding of the concept of being a witness. A, a really good rule of thumb when you're reading the New Testament, is to read it with Old Testament eyes. And ask yourself, how did this concept work in the Old Testament? What would this have meant? Because after all, Jesus' followers and his listeners at this time were steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. That was their Bible. And there's a particular passage back in Isaiah 43. Flick over there, keep your thumb in Acts 1, but just turn for a second to Isaiah 43, where this concept of witnesses is really given its meaning, and the meaning that Jesus draws out of it in Acts 1. The scene here in Isaiah 43 is that the metaphor is of a huge courtroom, a courtroom to which all of creation is invited. All the nations are summoned, as it were, before God, before Yahweh. And he is going to demonstrate to them in a sort of court of law type way his own supremacy and his own dignity and reality among the nations. So he says to them in verse 9, all the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Which of their gods foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right so that others may hear and say it is true. So God is becoming here the, uh, the prosecutor to the, the gods of the nations, saying let them bring their witnesses. Let's just see these pagan gods of the nations. What, what kind of witnesses have you got to show us that these gods are for real? What have they done? Who can speak for them? And of course the nations can't. They're impotent. They've got nothing. They can say nothing. And then God turns around and he becomes the defendant. And he calls his own witness. He says in verse 10, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, speaking to Israel, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe in me and understand that I am he. And then down halfway through verse 12, he says it again. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? And so here is God at that moment when he summons his key witness, his only witness, to prove his reality, his sovereignty, his supremacy. And he says, here's my servant Israel. And they are 
a witness to me before all the nations. This was the role of Israel in the world, to testify through the holiness and their set-apart nature to the greatness, to the saving love and the redemptive work of God that ultimately all nations might be drawn in to come and worship at the feet of the one true living God, Yahweh. And isn't it intriguing when you get to Acts chapter 1, as Jesus is about to ascend to heaven and he has this final conversation with his disciples, he says almost verbatim the same words to them. God says to Israel, you will be my witnesses before the nations. And here is Jesus saying before his disciples, you will be my witnesses. Now we might not pick up on those connotations straight away because we have 21st century ears. But to these disciples, they would have connected the dots and they would have heard behind the words of Jesus echoes of Isaiah 43. That's where this concept of being a witness got its currency from, that great courtroom metaphor. So what's Jesus saying then by calling his disciples his witnesses? He's saying Israel of old was given this mantle to be a witness to the, to the saving love and greatness and power of God, but they ultimately never fulfilled that calling. They ultimately never became the great witness that God intended them to be. And so now Jesus turns to his disciples and says, so you are now my witnesses. And in these words, Jesus is passing that mantle of being the great witness to the living God from the nation of Israel in the Old Testament to the church of the New Testament, that we now take up that vocation of Israel. That task and assignment given to them is now ours. And this community, even before it's formed, this community that was going to form around the person of Jesus Christ, is given this mandate, given this commission in the world to be a witness, to be a living, breathing testimony before all nations, before a waiting and watching world, to the love, to the grace, to the sovereignty, to the supremacy of God. So Jesus is giving the church, even before it's formed, a focus beyond itself. He's giving the church an external focus. So if nothing else, the church is to be focused on those outside of its own community, those who are not yet a part of this community. Jesus establishes the church as a witnessing movement. And from its very inception, you start reading through the book of Acts and you see the way this takes shape. The church has like, like a centrifugal force to it. I'm not really a physics expert. Uh, I don't know much about centrifugal forces, but I have been on a merry-go-round. Uh, and if you've been on one of those, you know the sensation, right? When was the last time you went on one of those merry-go-rounds at a playground? You jump on, you know, and you run and push and you jump on, and there's that force that's pulling you out, right? To the point you're holding onto the bars and your head's out here, and you're like, ah! You go around and around and You know what I'm talking about. Don't make me feel stupid. I'm not the only one. Come on. You know this. And that's a centrifugal force, isn't it? Yeah, coming out from the center, pushing you out. That's what the church is supposed to be. It's supposed to have a centrifugal force to it. That's what Jesus is intending. So that the closer you get to the center of church life, the, the stronger the pull is to the outside. The closer you get to the heartbeat of what's going on around here and, and, the, and the culture of this local church, the stronger should be that motivation and that pull of our hearts to those on the outside. So that we don't just get this insular pull going on, but constantly, much as we're being pulled and moved towards one another, we are also, our hearts are being broken and we are being pulled outside. We are being given passion and mobilized and energized for the task of mission outside our own doors, outside our own. And this is why the church, I think, is best described as a movement. This is why I've called the series the Jesus Movement. Because church, you know that word, 
Think of the connotations, what, you know, the word association game, what words come to your mind straight away when you think of church? It's, it's something sterile, it's, it's cold, it's organisational, it's institutional, it's not really going anywhere, it's just often hierarchies and stained glass windows and hymns and pipe organs and these kinds of things. I think the church in the first century was far better described as a movement. It was mission-centred, it had a goal, it had a purpose, it was fluid. It was adaptable to different circumstances as it moved in and out of different cultures, but it knew that above all it was to be a centrifugal force moving out into the world, influencing others with the gospel, with the good news about Jesus. That's the whole purpose that Jesus is getting at. Those are the last words that he leaves his disciples. He doesn't say to them, I want you to huddle in a holy little group and put your heads in the sand and pat each other on the back. He doesn't say, I I want you to blend into the culture around you so you don't look any different from anyone else. He says, I want you to be my witnesses. I want you to move beyond yourselves and exist for the benefit of those who are yet to taste this community and this reality. And so as the church moves out in the book of Acts, how does this work itself out? How does this become practical? There's a couple of ways. The first is uh, simply through what, what you might call speaking or testifying, talking to people about the reality of Jesus. And this is obviously central to what it means to be a witness. A witness is someone who who does what? Who testifies to what they've experienced, to what they've seen, to what they've heard, to what they know to be true. And for the first followers of Jesus, these guys who he was leaving in Jerusalem, they were eyewitnesses of his glory. So for them, it was being able to say, yep, I knew him, I walked with him, I ate with him, I saw him die, I've seen him since, which means he's raised from the dead, which means he's Israel's Messiah. And now you need to also begin following him. They had this incredible proximity to Jesus, where their testimony was that of an eyewitness. That's what gave their witness such incredible power. You and I don't have quite the same proximity, physically, geographically, to Christ. But our witness takes the same form of testifying to that which we know. Testifying to what we've seen and experienced and heard. Not not giving empirical proofs and arguments all the time. Sometimes we assume that that's what it takes that we've got to convince and we've got to argue people into the kingdom. I don't think people ever get argued into the kingdom. There is a place for apologetics. There's a place for persuasive intellectual arguments, but ultimately it's the power of testimony and it's the power of personal faith that has the most potency. And these things often work themselves out most powerfully through the power of personal conversation, personal relationships, personal interactions. This is the bread and butter of what church life is to be witnessing through our own relational connections to who we've experienced God to be. I had a conversation last year with my hairdresser. Uh, Her name was Helena. And I can remember that because Helena the hair product. So I think Helena the hairdresser. Now, because I'm not very good with names, so I need that association. But um, she was new that day, actually, just started working there. And so I got chatting to her and noticed that she had an accent. And I'd narrowed it down to either uh, Scotland or Ireland. So I thought, I'll have a stab at this. Um, this will be good to get us going. So I said, oh, you're from uh, Scotland or Ireland? What, what, what is it? And she said, I'm from Russia. <laughs> and so, I, oh, how did I get that so wrong, you know? So anyway, that was a bad first step. Uh, but we kept talking, and uh, she eventually asked what I did for a living. And so I said, I work for a church up in Albany, which usually, honestly, I tell you, is a conversation killer. You know, at barbecues and stuff, you say that. People strangely need to go and get another drink (laughs) when that comes up. But um, she was actually interested, you know, which barely ever happens to me, uh, and was asking questions. 
and uh, not, not interested in me, interested in <laughs> what I was saying but about the church. <laughs> Settle down. Jeez, it's going to be a long year, isn't it? And so she was asking questions about Shaw and the church and all of this stuff. And she said that she was, she'd been wanting to get into a good local church since she came back to New Zealand. She'd been, I think, at an Eastern Orthodox church in Russia and had a real interest in Christian things. So this was fantastic. So I gave her the details of the church and where we meet and our phone number and all these things. And I was really, really excited leaving that day. And to my knowledge, she has never come. Uh, honestly, and so, you know, every Sunday almost, I guess I'm waning on this a little bit now, but certainly in the first few weeks, every Sunday I'd be, you know, looking and, and hoping and, and praying that she'd come, and she never did, as far as I know, and, you know, that can be disappointing, and maybe you've been there, uh, there's a church in the States that has out, the, out in the foyer area what they call a fool's bench, it's that area that you sit on and wait for your friend to come to church, and so often it ends up being the fool's bench, because you're disappointed, and they don't show, and so I've been there in that, in that situation. But it reminded me again of just the importance of those conversations. I mean, I didn't share anything with her in terms of the message of, of Jesus, God's story, that kind of thing. It was a very light kind of interaction, hopefully the first of, of many. I haven't got my hair cut since then, so I'll have to go back. But uh, hopefully we can, we can keep going down that track. But it, when you have those conversations, it brings home to you how important they are. And you realize, I do need to be doing this. I need to be looking, I need to be aware opening myself up to the promptings of the Holy Spirit in those moments to step into those and not away from them, not to shrink back, to just open up my mind to what God might just be wanting me to do. Uh, not even just people I already have a relationship with, but people I'm just going to interact with through the day. And this is something that we want to foster across our whole church to make normative uh, around here so that it is a very natural part of who we are. It's not just about meeting together on Sundays, but we are energized and, and revved up in these times to go and, and be uh, missionaries in the world and to take our own relationships uh, hopefully closer to uh, taking people towards Christ. Uh, there's a couple of things we want to do this year to try and foster that. There's a course that we ran last year called Just Walk Across the Room, uh, which is a great course to fire you up and equip you a little bit in this area of personal evangelism, how to start those conversations with people, how to discover their stories, to share your own, to discern what next steps a person might need because people are different. They come at issues in different ways, intellectual, emotional, and so on. Um, and the feedback from that course has been really good, so we're going to try and kick that off again uh, probably in the next month or so. We're also going to run this year a course called The Big Ask, which is, uh, some of you might have heard of Rob Harley. He's produced this course where he's gone and interviewed three high-profile Christian speakers who relate incredibly well to uh, non-Christians. Rob Harley, uh, no, not Rob Harley, uh, Rob Bell, Lee Strobel, and Philip Yancey. And he spliced together these interviews and created eight really great sessions which just tackle key issues that non-Christians may have. Why does God allow suffering in the world? Who was Jesus anyway? Why should I trust the Bible? All that kind of stuff. It's Kiwi content which is, which is really good. We're going to try and run that maybe on, a, on weeknights, maybe at a cafe or something like that. We're still working on it. But that's not just an opportunity for us to come along and be edified but a tool. So be thinking about who you might invite along to that. Not everyone's going to be into that but there might be someone you know who could benefit from that. An eight week uh, type of thing, and that could be a catalyst for some more conversations. So a large part of our witness is speaking. It's taking opportunities. It's sharing our faith and our, our story with other people. There is a second strand, though, to all of this, one that we often miss and uh, not, not talked about maybe as much. But as you read through the book of Acts, it becomes apparent that the followers of Jesus weren't only concerned to, to talk to people 
about God and about their experience of Jesus. They were also concerned to be Jesus to people. Uh, to the point that what you see Luke doing is showing us how these people are actually carrying on exactly what Jesus did when he was on earth. So just as Jesus said, I've come to bind up the brokenhearted and, and set the captives free, and, and these kinds of things, minister to the poor and the marginalized, you see the disciples in the book of Acts taking that mantle and in really practical ways working that out. So you have Cornelius and Tabitha who are commended for their love for the poor and their service for people that, that, that are economically downtrodden. You have the church in Antioch raising money for those in Judea who are affected by a famine. You have the apostles moving out with compassion and mercy towards those who are downtrodden, towards those who are sick, towards those who are tormented by evil spirits. And there is this constant activity that witnessing is not just about our words, it's also about our actions. It's also about our lives and it's also about serving people, particularly serving the least of these. Those that Jesus was talking about when he said, whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. And so often... We assume that being a witness or sharing our faith or doing evangelism or any of those types of words are simply about us speaking a message and telling people how they can be saved, that it's simply sharing the gospel with someone. But let me ask you this, what is the gospel? We throw that word around a lot. We assume, well, surely the gospel is just like a, a five or six step plan whereby an individual can come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Isn't that what the gospel is? Well, I don't want to uh, break any sacred cows here, but I would challenge you to find a scripture where the gospel is reduced to that. I, I, don't, I don't see Paul describing it that way. I don't see it being packaged that way. It certainly includes how a person can come to know God personally, but it doesn't stop there. The gospel, friends, is above all the good news that in the dying and rising of Jesus Christ, God has acted decisively to bring about an entirely new creation, to bring about an entirely new world order, in a sense, an entirely new system that doesn't just affect the souls of individual people, but is as expansive as creation itself and involves the renewing and the reconciling of all things. This is the passage that Gary preached on a couple of weeks ago in Colossians 1, where, where part of God's intention through Christ is to reconcile all things to himself, things on earth and things in heaven. God is at work creating an entirely new world, a world that will culminate one day in the picture we see in Revelation 21 and 22 of heaven descending to earth and earth being completely recreated in the image of God, taking us back to as it was supposed to be, in the beginning. And so en route to this destination, the church, the communion of saints, is called to be a living, breathing witness to that reality, to witness to the glorious future God is preparing, and not just to tell people about it, but to embody it in the present, to actually be agents of the new creation, and enable the Spirit of God to break in in the present in a multitude of ways, one of which centrally is, of course, helping people become right with God. But around that are all kinds of ways in which we can serve people, restore the dignity of people, help people simply become more human, minister to those on the margins, meet people's needs. The gospel is not just something that addresses this part of a person that we call the soul. We think that's often how it works, and so we don't care about the rest of the person. 
because we think, well, we're only concerned with the spiritual part, but there is no spiritual part. We are all spiritual beings. We're created in the image of God. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. We are spiritual in totality, and that means we need to be a church that takes the whole gospel to the whole person, not just a part of the gospel to a part of the person, but to have a holistic understanding of what mission and witnessing and evangelism is all about. And this can be as simple as looking out for the needs of people that you know, people that don't know Jesus, to serve them, to meet their needs in practical ways, to minister to those that might be sick, to take some soup around to a colleague who's bedridden at home and is sick, to actually look out for ways that we can meet people where they're at, to take Jesus seriously when he talked of reaching out to the least of these and asking ourselves the question, who are the least of these? in our own context, in our own community, in our own city. And typically we come up with stereotypes like homeless people and prostitutes, and they'd certainly be included, but think more broadly. Would the least of these include intellectually and physically disabled people? Would they include at-risk youth? Would they include people struggling with various types of addictions? Would they include kids from broken homes, victims of abuse? What responsibility does the church have to minister to these types of people? I'm not suggesting that we run out and create 10 new ministry programs to do all this. I think a lot of the time God lays these burdens on people's heart, as he's already doing, even among us. Think of people like Mark Wallace, who was involved in running a lunch for the homeless last Christmas. Janelle, who works with refugees coming into the country. New immigrants, people without a homeland now, helping them to settle people that have a heart for Habitat for Humanity, building homes for the underprivileged down in South Auckland. God's already moving among us. He's already placing these sorts of things. And it may well be that our role is to simply come alongside those people, help build teams, energize them, empower them, resource them, release them. It doesn't always have to have our church logo on it. We don't always need to reinvent the wheel. It doesn't need to have our ego attached to it. As much as possible, we can work with other organizations in doing this sort of stuff. And it's not going to be an overnighter. But I would submit to you that our responsibility as a witnessing community goes beyond simply speaking about Jesus to people. That always must be kept central. We never want to sacrifice it. But we also want to be about taking the whole gospel, the good news of what God is doing across creation, to the whole person and meeting all of the needs that people may have as we're able to, as is manageable, for us. But taking that seriously, and the first step is simply becoming aware of it, and simply praying into it, and asking that God might place on our hearts a task or an assignment. And perhaps, even as you sit here this morning, there's, there's a stirring in your own heart of what God might be calling you to do along these lines. Just to let, be open to that. See where that goes. Let's have that conversation together, and let's just watch what God might do, and where He might work as we journey forward together.